Hey everybody, so welcome back. Super stoked for this episode. Today I am sat down with the prolific multidisciplinary artist R. Jammin. They are an artist from Los Angeles, currently based in New York City, and they work with video, sound, sculpture, graphite drawings, and more. Um, and their work really revolves around cosmologies as they're understood through science, religion, and microcosmic observation, some might say. You can find their work on their website, rjammin.net. They also did the illustrations for Brian Cotnoir's past book um, on alchemy. And um, yeah, and not to blow your spot or anything, but also a dear beloved friend of mine. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's really flattering. (laughs) Um, I'm glad to be here, Zelda. (laughs) So we're going to be talking about queer theology specifically as it pertains to Victorian spiritualism and the art that has emerged from that vein of thinking. And um, yeah, very, very excited because Roxy is an absolute well of knowledge. So um, for any of you guys that enjoy religious studies and maybe don't know what queer theology is, it's just theology that perfect purposely opposes fixed ideas of gender or sexuality that are usually advocated for by traditional religious institutions or it's just any sort of theology that challenges um, historically imposed boundaries of sexuality and gender on the overall history of religion so not only is it sort of a contemporary line of thought that's uh, building off of uh, past theories of theology, it also works to deconstruct how we may interpret religions at present. So it's a it's a really cool thing. Uh, originally, I learned this today. Originally, before it was called queer theology, which is like a newer term, it was just called pro-feminist gay theology. Whoa, that's awesome. So yeah. we're gonna crack open some pro-feminist gay theology. We really will, and it's the. Th- the hard thing about this is that, like, I feel like a ton of the scholarship about, I guess, Victorian occultism and spiritualism revolves um, heavily around, well, obviously Christian mysticism and, like, those dominant sects of occultism, but also, like, any queerness aspects of it primarily goes towards gay men. Um, and so I think that there's, like, but there are really interesting nuances within women and other people who maybe are outside of those like typical sort of relationships that you hear about um there's like there's an interesting thing because like I think a big part of queer theology especially coming about in in like I would say like the later 1800s was that up until um 1885 sodomy was um an act and it, it was illegal as an act but after 1885 it became illegal to be any to be a sodomite like the um if that makes sense yeah so it was first like action-based versus identity-based yeah so it became a thing where like if you committed sodomy you were now a sodomite and that was illegal so it was like your identity was illegal and not just an activity Mm. um so did the punishment for that and the societal backlash also like increase exponentially yeah yeah and it became a harsher a harsher crime Mm. um and so i think that like 
gay men really got like hit the hardest um, because their sexuality was written down in law. But the the issue with lesbianism was that it just wasn't even talked about in the first place, and that, that wasn't was why even acknowledged as existing. Yeah, exactly. And then that's where you get all these like really fuzzy like were they friends for life situations. Mm. Um, I actually have some questions about that later, um, specifically yeah. for one of the artists that we're going to get into um, and your thoughts on the contemporary overwriting of that, like, yeah. lifelong companionship. Oh, yeah. And we see that all the time today. Yeah. But I think that's, like, that's a really big hallmark about, like, queerness in general in this period of time is that, like, if it doesn't, if it doesn't like fit within the boundaries of sodomy, and that is like a specific sexual activity that you can define, um, I think everyone else kind of exists in the shadows and operates in like a much, like I don't know, a much more elusive realm mm-hmm. um, and yeah. completely erased too. Because yeah. as terrible as it is that, and like still, <laughs> yeah, it sucks that gay men were like actively being persecuted and stuff, but Completely. also in, you know, a lot of ways that we know about, um, like oppositional activities through like legal records and yeah. stuff, or just like any sort of, you know, independent activity. Um, and then with like lesbianism or any other form of queerness being like not even acknowledged. Yeah. Well, it's I really think, hard to find records. I think it took a really long time for people to even acknowledge that women had sexuality in in the first place like you can't really (laughs) you can't really make something illegal if you're like making it illegal would mean that you had to acknowledge that it existed um and I think it was a lot easier to just be like oh yeah my wife just likes to like go to go to her little club where her and her girls all hang out <laughs> i don't really know what happens there but like we my just girl and her it. best friend just spend a lot of time in their room together yeah well that's another they, they share a bed a really good example of that is like this artist alice austin um and she's a she's a new york she was in new york i was like she's a new york based artist in in the victorian age <laughs> um but there's actually a wonderful house museum that belonged to her in Staten Island that has all of her work in it or a good amount of it. And you can go around and walk around her house and around her estate. She was basically an upper middle class woman in the Victorian and Edwardian eras. And I guess I think mostly Edwardian, actually, because she had a her big thing was photography. Um, but she photographed a lot of her personal life with her lover, um, her like lifelong lover. And um, the club that she called the Darning Club or the Darn Club of these women that would like all meet up for their little activities club, but they would all dress in drag and take illicit photographs of themselves um, wearing like in their skivvies with like their hair down and wearing masks and smoking cigarettes and doing all the things they weren't supposed to. And these photos weren't shown to anyone. She was primarily, like, known within her lifetime for photographing, like, the street scenes of hustling and bustling Industrial Revolution New York. Um, But now these archives are public. Um, But, yeah, she did this all under the guise of, like, let me meet up with my club. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure, like, it was a while that people were, like, lifelong companions. Yeah, yeah, completely. So do you want to get into a little bit about Victorian spiritualism for the folks that may not know what that is referencing? Yeah, totally. Um, 
basically I feel like like where do I start um spiritualism came out of what a lot of people consider a reaction to the death and violence and like overall tragedy that was happening in the later half of the 1800s um it was a time of like also like really significant scientific discovery um Mm. And so I think that scientific discovery called a lot of religion into question. Um, A lot of, I think, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this, but I think a lot of, um, I guess, traditional Abrahamic religion was written a really long time ago. And people were really used to just taking everything at face value. And all the, and of course there were people like Copernicus and like all the heretics of like the, the enlightenment, um, that were cracking those things wide open. But here you have a period of time where all of a sudden there's electricity and there are microscopes and there's like complex astronomy and math happening. Um, And all of a sudden people are having to understand the fact that like humans are not going to be limited to not being able to understand everything forever. Um, Mm. There was like a reckoning with the fact that people are learning how to understand the universe and with all of this new information how do we situate ourselves Mm. yeah like i mean what you're talking about with uh the microscope and like sound and electricity being explored in all these new ways there's a lot of um there's a lot of reference to like what was formerly invisible becoming visible Mm. and um in my own studies of like astral projection which also became really big around this time foreshadowing episode will be released on that (laughs) eventually um it's like the this um you know imagine how crazy it was to be alive and like yeah in the victorian era and then find out about electricity and be like there's just like currents moving through the air yeah no completely and then it's like okay what else can we explore about like what's beyond you're what also, we can see you're also like, getting energies. like mass communication you're getting like oh, yeah. new communication devices being invented telephones went crazy yeah. yeah and the telegraph and like even more arcane <laughs> ways to deliver messages quickly and you even saw like this is a bit of a, t- a side note but i had done some research into like clairvoyance research that was happening around this period of time um and there were studies that happened during world war one you can read more about this in the really hard to find book um what is it called um beyond the senses by charles francis potter it's a really hard book to find but i was lucky enough to like locate one at my workplace Mm. and i read it a really long time ago and it details like all of these studies on clairvoyance that were done around this period of time Um, and extrasensory perception and mesmerism to extents, but mostly about like mind communication. And yeah, during World War One, there were all these studies with soldiers trying to figure out if like telepathic communication could be harnessed in any sort of way to move information across the world at real time. Yeah. So on the note of all of these innovations happening, then people also want innovations in other cultural backbones of their lives including religion yeah or i think uh, like all of a sudden you're getting things happening that um or things are happening that are almost parallel to the miracles of religion Mm -hmm. like all of the sudden they're like you can turn on the light whenever you want you don't need to even have a fire you can just press a switch and there's a light or you can hear the voices of the dead speaking back to you 
which was something that was like unfathomable. Also, you're getting pictures of people that um, like you can have a recollection of someone that is, I guess, more objective. And all of a sudden, cosmologies are rapidly changing. And there's a new group of people that are considering themselves more modern that are taking influence from, I guess, Eastern religions, which is also a product of like globalization and movement around the globe and people traveling and bringing things back. And Madame Blavatsky was a big influence in that. She was one of the spiritualists. Helen? Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, wow, you, you pay your respects. I, I, like, I, pay my, Helen, Helen? I pay my respects. I pay my respects to her. Um, yeah, who was she, uh, the founding theosophist? Yeah, the founding theosophist, or one of them, I guess. And she went on a lot of travels to, um, I guess, East Asia and the Middle East, and did her studies on Eastern religions, and came back and was like, they had some really crazy ideas, and they're probably right. And yeah, like ideas of meditation and astral projection mm-hmm. as they were like expounded in uh, more yeah hermetic spaces definitely pulled from that and like also the um there was an idea of like babbitt's atom which was one of the i guess spiritualist ideas of how the atom operated which um it operated on the, like a fundamental principle called the anu which i believe was taken from jainism um and it is an idea about like this absolute like atomic smallest individual like indivisible particle that will take like love in and like energy out and like um so there were all of these ideas happening Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden like modern quote-unquote modern people didn't want to be associated with aspects of the past that felt like maybe primitive or uneducated like worshiping a god blindly they Mm -hmm. wanted to like know their agency yeah and i would also say like along with that just in a time of massive industry there's more of like individualism that's going on um and at the same time you know you have things like theosophy which are sort of like modern then modern reboots of mysticism which are um like achieving states of ecstasy and you know union with stuff beyond through your own individual or like small like hidden group activities and things yeah. but basically like no intermediary so totally it's like on this uprise you don't have to go like, through a church to like understand all of these like sensations mm-hmm. that are happening and that's also like that leads us to queerness in it exactly um, so how 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 does this idea of like individualism and like new frontiers and spirituality lend itself to being such a backbone and uh like petri dish for queer culture yeah well that's a really interesting question i think a big part of it was that um i think like we talk about compulsory heterosexuality a ton today i mean back then you got married and you had kids and it wasn't a question and i think like there's a there's a really good section about this in this in this um dissertation that I would be like really ashamed not to admit that I read and like really loved um and the dissertation is called late Victorian sexuality and spiritualism and it's by Sharon E. Kelly um so I have to shout out there but she kind of talks about how um how like you even see this in like Oscar Wilde like he had a wife and kids like 
everyone had a wife and kids and it wasn't really an option. Um, straight relationships were going to happen no matter what for you. And that was in the world of the physical. But what you did have control of was the world of the emotional and the world of the metaphysical. And that's where these bonds were happening. That's where queer bonds were happening. They were not happening on like the ground level where you could like go on a date with someone and be like, let's settle down and have kids together. The ground level for queer people was like, let's like merge our minds together and like have a seance and like try and telepathically communicate. And um, let's like, let's like, make art together and like um because that's the way that you get yeah. union i'd also say like in addition to the economic stuff that's happening for you saying like straight relationships happening on a very material plane it was also the economic incentive like a, a home physically could not be supported without the unpaid labor of the woman and the paid labor of the man and then the additional added incomes of children so it was like in a very real way, an economic and materially incentivized thing. Um, so it does make yeah. sense that you're saying queer relationships necessarily had to evolve out of those spaces because it was on no level practical to, especially in the case of um, lesbianism, it's like two women together, like without necessarily <laughs> a means of income from that. And yeah. on that note, yes. like female spiritualists are some of the very few, as you guys may have heard in my last episode with Letitia, were one of the very few avenues of income for independent women. Completely. So it's like, if two women do want to be lifelong companions, a career, air quote, like a career as a spiritualist or as a medium was a really viable way to do that. Yeah. I mean, like, I also think that I don't know that many, I'm sure there are so many examples of like a sort of um, two women partnership of like making money that way. But I, what I was finding more was that like, this was something that had to do with your home life and had to do with like your internal and domestic practice. And then maybe you like went out and made money doing something else and taught or something. Um, I mean, definitely socially, I think that like, these groups of women were, um, I don't know, I lost my train of thought. You'll have to remind, get me back on track. Like these groups of women were coming together as like a hobby type of thing? No, and then... I think it was sort of like as a meaning thing. Like, um, I think that like, again, like, um, there, there's a really good passage on this. I keep bringing up references, but I think like, I'm just going to mention them in case anyone out there is wanting to look it up. But I've been reading this book called Telony, which was authored in... Victorian England um we don't know by who it's anonymous some people attribute it to Oscar Wilde but I you know that might just be for popularity mm -hmm. we don't really know um but this book is about a man who um basically had suppressed his sexuality his entire life and goes to a piano concert and gets psychic visions of things watching the pianist play and like gets these really intense visions and then meets him after the show and shakes his hand. And basically they acknowledge that they've been having the same visions. Well, they, he was playing piano and the other person was watching and that, and this begins like a love affair between them that is like physical, but also deeply spiritual and psychological and has to do with like telepathic communication and, um, 
like a link in the world beyond the physical because the physical world like it wasn't really possible to just ogle this guy and be like I'm really into him there's a deeper it's like rooted I think in the DNA of having to be queer um especially in like the world we live in is that it's something that happens on an, a mental and emotional level before it can really be physically accepted I think for a lot of us who are queer I think also um it states this in the book of like this man throughout his journey accepting himself as a as a gay man in this book is going through his um his life and being like I tried to fight against my nature but he makes it a a big point in the book to never be like it's wrong and sinful he's like it's in my nature and I was told it was wrong and sinful but it's natural to me um and I think that's like a really big part of um queerness especially in this period of time yeah especially when we're talking about things that are um like blooming in scientific innovation and those are like oh these are like natural things that we can now see and yeah. then there's sort of a emerging of you know I mean nature and religion has always been something that's quite merged yeah but then you know accepting your own nature is something that can have space in religion and spirituality well also there's proof of active cover-up attempts from this period of time to like suppress any scientific evidence on animals and nature that were gay. There's actually a great radio lab episode about this that just came out um, about seagulls, but it Victorian is, seagulls that were gay. These are contemporary seagulls that are, that were gay, but this dates back to like, I guess Darwinism. People were observing animals um, mm. be gay since, since they started really monitoring animals um, and then decided not to report these findings because it was against nature, which is a crazy, crazy thing. And it was only against like, nature or like against the state. No, against they were like, well, these animals are acting crazy. Like this is not natural. Like these animals are that's why, uh, like anomalies, I guess. And it was only until second wave feminism hit um, that like this was really like brought to attention. I think in the 70s. Is that second wave? The second wave I think yeah second yeah. wave is like 70s 80s yeah this was like in the 70s that um this research was like brought to light by and and researchers were like not going to ignore it anymore um that's a side note and I love that side yeah. note and I love that <laughs> side note but yeah you're right that like I think since this period of time and especially in this period of time when we're talking about the Victorian and Edwardian periods and spiritualism within them um, um there is an embracing of like the natural order of se human sexuality and that sexuality is like, and, and especially even more than sexuality, sensuality is deeply important to the spiritual that like you see this in mesmerism. I don't know how familiar you are with mesmerism. No, but I did go to like an erotic hypnosis class and I was like, yeah, continuing the legacy. No, honestly. literally that's the same kind of idea of like, it has to do with moving energies around and, communicating with the body through touch mm. um and like that was a it involved like placing hands on um I guess a patient to to like move energy and spirit through them wow. um and like that was like there were sensual rituals that would connect body and mind to spirituality that were accepted within spiritualism because 
the erotic was inherently part of um, co- their cosmology, I guess. Mm-hmm. Wherein, like, I think Christianity, which is really dominant, um, touch was a thing that was, like, sinful and um, not natural. And I think a big thing in spiritualism was a return to the natural so it was about the body but you know what was interesting yeah in the long history of christian mystics most often people would describe their convening with Mm -hmm. uh specifically like jesus in very erotic terms especially like the female mystics but like um, saint Teresa, all across yeah i'm thinking of saint Teresa mainly and so that's an interesting almost intuitive collaboration of the erotic and the divine oh yeah well that's like i think that's like not to be like this is what my art's about but like but this is what what my art's about (laughs) um i think or like at least part of it i think i i think about this a lot that like Mm. these big feelings of like divinity are so they are erotic and they are sensual and that's so counterintuitive Mm. to like I think everything that these religions yeah, try and like condition to think about it totally and and so I think that's really like an essential part of spiritualism that it has to do with like mystery and you know people associate we can't like talk about spiritualism without being like you know people associating it with like quacks and people will who will do like fake that's seances true. and like do gimmicks but that is like spiritualism on a whole. And then I think theosophy, which is what we're m- more talking about. Yeah, definitely. Um, really. And led by Madame Blavatsky. Really, Madame Blavatsky. really like led, I think, away from that idea of gimmick. Mm. You know, what's interesting, though, is often I think of the word ecstasy as the word that for me was the first time I was like, oh, these concepts are like unified, you know, like the idea of ecstasy being associated very strongly mm. in the way we use it with like sexual ecstasy and then at the same time like mystical ecstasy completely divine ecstasy being a concept that like stands alone and it's like okay why how do we see like yeah ecstasy in the erotic anyways no i think you're totally right and i think theosophy and spiritualism and the occult in this period of time were honestly obsessed with those states of ecstasy and mm-hmm. you see so many accounts of like I had this vision and it brought me to a state of ecstasy or like my bo- my bodily sensations were like doing unexpected things. You see this in automated writing even mm-hmm. um, and yeah, trance and states that were happening. And all of the trance states associated with like the great art. And I mean, that's why every mystic had some artistic outpouring is because these things were beyond, beyond language. logical, linear yeah. thinking and whatnot. So that being said, our... I think we should jump into some examples of the queer Victorian spiritualists that yeah. were really popping off, especially in their own art, about showing these like unifications and also being sort of a what is that like a stamp in the earth of like oh like we're a, here like a I just don't know. A, sort of like a stake of being like you know a I don't know of uh, material remnants of like their existence yeah and that's something that I especially appreciate about all the art that comes out of this movement because think of all the people that participated it in it whose art didn't become um like really well taken care of and become archives later on and things like that like there are so many people who participated in these more you know hidden religious waves yeah who will never get 
recognized so it's like almost impossible to say how many people engaged in this well yes and how hot the queer <laughs> totally the queer scene was in these places well you know that i like have very intense feelings about Hilma off clint um and so i came to zelda and was like i need to talk about him off clint because i think like i became obsessed with her when honestly in the same period of time that i was becoming upset i was reading like all of these things about spiritualism um but also like i've been obsessed with science like my whole life and especially physics and these because i feel like it has such a big part of cosmology in it um and i think like a lot of these i don't know i think a lot of these artists um like hilma Ofklint worked in ways that were so deeply I guess tied to queer theology in a way that I don't think is acknowledged in I don't know public media I don't it's such a complicated thing I mean honestly spiritualism isn't really acknowledged in uh mainstream religious studies at least uh it's it's certainly talked about but as you said it's not really talked about without the caveat of it being filled with quacks and it yeah. not being like a legitimate <laughs> religion because it's yeah. non-institutionalized. Well, I mean, you hear that with alchemy too, but like, I think this That's is true. like another example and of that. Satanism because yeah. it becomes a religion because it's dogmatic and it's like our histories of religion are going to become so bleak and are totally. already pretty bleak if we only include things that are being written down and canonized in very linear ways yeah. when as we just said there is such a rich history yeah. of fringe religious movements yeah. Yeah, 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 that yeah. cannot be compressed into uh, a very narrow categorization i suppose well i think that like i i think that i'm trying to figure out where where i was at i think um helma ofklin in specific like i don't want to say that no one has done research on her spiritualism because they have they really have but the issue with that is that you there are these like two camps of Hillmoffclin research that I've read, and I've read as much as I could get my hands on of um, writing about her, and it falls into these two categories where you either have like Hillmoffclin is a spiritualist who was like a crazy lesbian witch in the forest, and then they only focus on the themes of spiritualism that were like pretty mainstream male dominated kind of ended up using I guess ignored her actual lesbianism and the themes in the work and we're just sort of like this is kind of Christian standard Christian mystic stuff where it's about um it's about like a man and a woman uniting and about like the cosmic numbers or whatever and um you have that camp and then you have and then, and that camp is like, she wasn't a serious artist. She was just a weird witch in the forest. And then you have the art world camp, which is like, she was a profound artist and she was a queer icon. And they don't even talk about like why or what. And like these institutions, like not to call out um, the Guggenheim by name, but the Guggenheim's exhibition on her that happened um, fairly recently, I think in 2019, um, or 2018, um, they used a, a lot of press about it was like queer icon Helma Ofklin's show, but in all of the scholarship 
written about the show in the show catalog in the research that accompanied the show they were like yeah her and her lifetime her lifetime best friend like lived together and Mm. like made these works and it was her and this like weird group of women we don't really know what they did but like enjoy these paintings because they're kind of like Kandinsky before Kandinsky like yeah just so one of the things that you wrote that I thought was so um illuminating was you saying I mean we talk about uh rainbow capitalism all the time or the like co-opting of um you know like pride and the rainbow flag to get people to like get geico insurance or something like something that has nothing to do with uh like queer visibility or queer rights or anything like that um and something that you said that really illuminated the 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 sorry state of off-clint scholarship yeah was that um yeah that they're they just use the word queer and lesbian when referring to her if that's a public facing thing that can pull people in and yeah in all of my in all of my research before this episode, when I was looking on like academic websites, yeah. you know, it was like absolutely there were no search results for like Hilma off Clint and queer. No, but it then doesn't exist. It's like when it's uh, like a BuzzFeed post or yeah, something. No, that's exactly what it's what like. I found. Oh, she's that. But, and then it's a very uncritical, or not an uncritical, then it's a very uh, unengaged yeah. analysis of her art. Then it's just like, oh, like queer artist. And then you don't actually talk about any of her art beyond that word. No. And, then, and then it's like, okay, so she's going to be memorialized if we're going in academia. She's yeah. going to be memorialized as like an unserious artist who or, had a best friend. Or as like pre-Kandinsky, which is also not what she wanted. Yeah, she was like not being engaged. defined only in proximity to a man who later did what you are doing. Yeah, and also like she wasn't even trying to be in the art world. Like that wasn't what this was about. Like not everything is about like trying to reinvent like the forms of abstraction around the western canon like not everyone's trying to do that and i i think this brings up the really important idea of like the aesthetic marriage um which is like i think a really interesting concept that comes out of the spiritualist movement um which is the concept and it of particularly with women um with lesbians but could be with anyone but about like a marriage that is rooted not in like the union of um, creating a child or having financial stability, which is, you know, typically the reasons for a heterosexual marriage around this time, Um, but um, a union rooted in creative expression and rooted in like a deeper kind of metaphysical bond with someone. And this is where you see these like lifetime companions and like, it must be admitted, like, we don't have, like, physical records that they had sex with each other. Yeah. And that's something that I was going to ask you about, actually, is, um, which I alluded to when we first started talking, which is the overwriting of her sexuality and how explicit it needs to be to divulge somebody's sexuality while at the same time advocating against people who argue that her queerness is speculative or any of the queerness that we're talking about is speculative. Yeah, I mean, I my answer to that is that I don't think it matters. Like, I don't really care whether or not she was having sex with her partner. And I think that, like, um, the reason why I don't care is because there is so much more to a lesbian relationship than sex. And 
I think like sex is something that comes out of these types of um, aesthetic marriages in ways that are really like different because there is like, again, we talked about how sodomy was defined. There's no definition of lesbian sex in this time period. There is really no talk about it at all. Um, But I don't think that is like, if you're working in a societal framework that is so much about um, sex for procreation, I think that there's like just completely different language around what that would look like in a different scenario. Um, And I also want to like, I want to respond to this, like, why is it important? Um, Because I have this like perfect chunk that I took from that essay by Sharon Kelly. I want to make sure that's her name. Yeah, Sharon Kelly. Um, Can I read it? Yeah, I would love that. Um, It says, I argue that the metaphorical sex is just as important as the potentially literal erotic relationship between the women. They have a consummated marriage of minds. The text thus becomes more their child or sex, sorry, more, the text thus becomes more than their child or sex object, but also the product of a mutual orgasm, a coming together of minds. And this is about the, um, about the author Michael Fields, um, which was actually a combination of two women who worked under a shared alias. Mm. Um, and they were lifelong partners, much like off Clint and her, um, different, her different lifelong companions and her five sisters who did, she did the seances with not her actual sisters, but that was what they called themselves. Um, and that's basically what, like, I mean to say is like, I think an aesthetic marriage is a metaphysical relationship and it's about converging. And sometimes that converging on a spiritual level involves sensual touching Mm. and it involves like erotics and sensuality, but also erotics. And this is so important to emphasize that erotics in this time period are like a lot of the time, not physical. Mm. And that's because like they kind of couldn't be. And that's again, going back to the thing of like telony and the, like the vision communication and telepathic queer erotic specifically yeah Yeah. queer erotic specifically um it happens so much on the metaphysical level i mean i would also say in a very um less conceptual and more just like layman's terms of thing no i love your i love your high concept mind um also it's like how do we how do we historically categorize or pinpoint a relationship when there is no marriage certificate yeah because with marriage laws being what they were um it's like so if we don't have that piece of paper how are we to talk about you know romantic commitment in in um ways that emerge outside of you know heterosexual marriages yeah and whatnot and um, i i also think that like again like heterosexual marriages in this time period were not about lifelong companionship or finding a partner that like completed you or made you feel yeah, whole it was economics it was economics it. and it was about creating children and you know i'm not saying people didn't marry for love but i'm just saying like that was not usually the highest priority mm-hmm. and it was usually just like kind of a symptom of a situation rather than like a cause yeah and so i think that like what's so important about the um, aesthetic marriage as we're calling it or any sort of queer 
um, relationship that involves like a queer person having a lifelong partner that was never confirmed nor denied as their sexual partner is that like above all this relationship was about love and companionship and about ultimate collaboration and that like that is a much more erotic and deeply meaningful thing than a lot of the straight marriages we're even seeing at this time Mm. or a lot of the sex like quote unquote that straight people are having at this time you know it's um fun and i have no evidence to back that up because i'm not gonna lie i don't know very much about victorian erotica yeah uh and i know you do (laughs) (laughs) but um people are gonna think i'm a freak um but it's interesting to think that like oh if there was a straight relationship that existed outside of marriage in this time it would be like there would be no question that people would be like oh they were just living together and sharing a bed yeah you know no obviously like i'm not gonna be like well it doesn't matter like i'm not gonna fully be like it doesn't matter whether or not they're having sex like i just you know they were lifelong partners they shared a love that like they didn't find with anyone else like what other what other confirmation do you want it goes and it goes to show the like ongoing erasure that it's like eraser erasure erasure but also like the fetishism of like why do you need to know about their sex life that's true but also just like yeah they it's like if you're asking people to prove like an improvable thing yeah unless they write verbatim like word for word yeah in their diary like that's why no pretty much no one admitted to being a lesbian that was a pretty dirty word back then yeah and like you even read like i mean if you like want to financially support yourself it's like nobody's gonna but also internally like you read the diary of anis nin which i did just finish and i think that like there's a anis nin oh for the for the listeners out there anis nin was um i guess a erotic writer um she did more than just erotics but primarily erotic stories in like the 1920s and 30s um and she had a bunch of tumultuous love affairs and very complicated love affairs with a bunch of people including june miller the wife of the author henry miller and they there's a whole passage in this book like half of this book is about her love for june and her obsession for june and her lust for june um and throughout the entire book she's like no, I'm not a lesbian. We connected on a spiritual level. It had nothing to do with sex, even though they did have sex. And even though it was like very much a sexual relationship, there was a constant denying. And like, you know, you see it in her personal diaries of her being like, no, this is definitely not a lesbian relationship because what I feel for her is on a spiritual level. For, I guess, the religious studies of it, we haven't even gotten into like... You're just going to have to edit this sound, or it can be a two-part series. That's what I was just thinking. And so it was written. We actually ended up talking for an additional 45 minutes after this. So this will indeed be a two-part episode. I hope you're all enjoying it as much as I enjoy listening back to it from future Zelda's perspective. This was actually recorded as a special pride month episode for way back in june but i'm sorry the summer just got way busier than i ever expected and i should have just announced that i was taking a hiatus because that's what ended up happening uh but very happy to be back so thank you all for tuning in and listening to this first part of what is a very interesting conversation and we haven't even gotten 
to the real nitty-gritty religious parts of it yet. Can you believe that? Yeah, and uh, extra special thanks to my guest, R. Jammin. Love them very much. Um, love that we can just have these swirling, whirling conversations that I want to immortalize forever. And if you want to keep supporting my podcast, you can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash fringe religion also on Instagram at fringe.religion, and you can also find my email in the bio there if you want to send me any questions or recommendations for guests or topics or anything that might scratch your little religious brain. And as a fun little follow-up, you can also catch me at the Parliament of the Worlds of Religions this week in Chicago, where I will be a featured panelist with a bunch of other really cool people specifically talking about interfaith work so maybe i'll see you there and if you see me there feel free to come on up say hi i'd be glad to talk to you and glad to hear about uh your experience with the podcast yeah so i think that's about it and i'll see you next week for part two of this very delightful conversation and there's some more um episodes already locked and loaded in the tank for your back to school or back to like fall time listening yeah so once again thank you all for joining me big love to all the listeners out there and to all the people that care about these little topics looking forward to seeing you next week Bye bye